Yeah, good morning, church. It's really good to be with you this morning. And whether you're a first-time guest or a regular attender, I welcome you and trust that you are being blessed as we meet together again. And uh, to you who are watching online, a special welcome to you as well. I'm Roger Poppin, uh, retired from full-time pastoral ministry, and I'm using this stool this morning for recent knee replacement surgery. does not uh, allow me to stand for long periods. Not that this sermon is going to be long, uh, but, but stay tuned. Uh, seriously, I would like to take a, a moment and, and just say thank you to you who prayed for my surgery. And because so many of you are asking how Jeannie is doing, my sunglass-wearing wife, uh, she's been struggling with double vision since January. And after several visits with numerous doctors, we finally have a diagnosis. She has Graves' disease, which is a thyroid issue, and she has thyroid eye disease some of which is treatable with medication and some with eye surgery. And surgery is presently scheduled for December 10th at uh, USC. And uh, thank you for your continued prayers. During the 20 years that I served here as uh, pastor, we hired several staff members, three of whom are our present pastors, Eric and Andy and Dave. Andy and Dave left us for a while, but they saw the light and came back, and uh, we are grateful for that. And it gives me great joy to see the church moving forward under their leadership uh, in partnership with uh, ministry and support staff, the Board of Elders, and just with so many of you who are uh, volunteering uh, your gifts and, and, and ministry. Now, in recent weeks, the, the pastors have been taking us through three of the most challenging chapters in the New Testament, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And when Pastor Eric asked me if I'd be willing to preach today and that my text is the middle section of verse 11, or of chapter 11, I thought, sure, I heard a voice saying, you're going to have the flu that weekend. And, but here I am without the flu, and I'm actually grateful for the opportunity to take us through today's text. Would you pray with me before we do that? Lord, I thank you so much for this time together this morning, that we can worship you in song and spirit, that we can connect again with our brothers and sisters in your family, and that we can uh, sit quietly and let your spirit teach us from your word. And I pray, Father, that you will do just that as we tackle this challenging portion of scripture. I pray that it somehow will nourish us and encourage us and, and remind us of how great you are and how great it is to be serving a God who is sovereign in, in everything he does and everything he allows. And Lord, I pray for churches throughout our country and world that are meeting today, Lord, that you would do a good work in the lives of your people. 
And I'm thinking also of 17 missionaries in Haiti who have been kidnapped. Lord, I pray your blessing upon them, your protection of them and their families. I pray that you would uh, do a good work in, in the, the, the hearts of the evil people who do such a thing. I pray that they will observe our missionaries and that they will see Christ in them and that they will repent of their deeds and come to know the Jesus whom these missionaries are serving. Well, we just commit them to your care, Lord, and trust that you will do a good thing in them and through them, that you will protect them, not only physically, but especially spiritually and emotionally as you minister to them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have you noticed that when you check your email messages, uh, each one is introduced usually by a short statement? Uh, for example, a few days ago, I got a notice from uh, Costco, introduced by click here to check your Anywhere Visa statement. And so I did, saw my statement, paid the bill. And occasionally, one will catch my attention with, Roger, you have won. <laughs> or, your unclaimed reward has not been claimed. And on a few occasions, it's been pretty rare, I haven't seen one recently, but in, in times past, I, I, I viewed a couple emails that were introduced with, this message has no content. And I ask, why would anyone post that? Why would anyone open a message that has no content? Well, the mail called Paul's letter to the Romans is loaded with content. And we who preach here believe in expository preaching. Expository means explaining, exposing, clarifying. We believe that our responsibility as pastor teachers is to expose, reveal as clearly as we can the content of the original message that was sent to the original audience and then do some discerning of what are the implications of this? What's the so what of this for us today? So my responsibility this morning is to communicate as clearly as I can what I believe Romans 11, 13 through 24, the passage that was just read, what, what did that passage say to the original audience, the Romans? And then, okay, having discerned that, what, what is this saying to us this morning? To set the context, for Romans 11. We need to go all the way back to Genesis and see God's call of Abraham and the promise to him that his descendants are God's chosen people and will be greatly blessed. I, God, will bless you with great privilege. I will use you as a witness to the whole world if you will just simply trust and obey me who chose you. In reiterating that promise to Abraham's son Isaac and then grandson Jacob and then later to Moses and then to David, God also promised them a specific piece of land that they can call home. And that from that people and land will come a Messiah king 
who will establish a worldwide kingdom of peace and prosperity. Now, as we read through the Old Testament, which focuses on God's relationship with Israel, the Jews, we may agree with the preacher who said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. How odd of God to choose the Jews. Because it's primarily a story of God choosing a people that were willfully disobedient, stubbornly rebellious toward the God who chose them. With occasional periods of short-lived repentance and obedience, but why would God choose such a stubborn people? And then during the next four, then during that 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have this period of silence. Silence from God, silence from the prophets, likely causing many to think, you know, we haven't heard a word from God for 400 years. He must have given up on the Jews and his purpose for them. But then we come into the Gospels, and we see this Jewish man called Jesus appears, and he presents himself to the people as God's son and their promised Messiah. And even though he came with jaw-dropping authority and teaching and and eye-opening miracles, God's people rejected him even putting him on a cross reserved for the worst of criminals. But God, committed to his sovereign purposes and plan, raised him from the dead, causing at least a remnant of Jews to conclude we were wrong about him. He is the Son of God. He is our Messiah. And they enthusiastically embraced him as their Savior and Lord. But as we see in the book of Acts, because most of the Jews were stuck in their arrogant unbelief, the message of Jesus, the Son of God who died for their sins and rose from the grave, was proclaimed by the apostles to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, with multitudes of them believing and forming that early church. Then we come to the book of Romans. And in the first eight chapters, Paul develops the theme, the doctrine, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's power for salvation for all people who believe. We find that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, are sinners, unable to save themselves, and are doomed for eternal condemnation, condemnation, unless they embrace the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We find that any and all who embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord are justified by faith. That is, they are declared righteous and are therefore free of condemnation. We find that Jews and Gentiles alike who embrace Jesus become one body in Christ, but it's mostly Gentiles who believe. So when we come to chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, Paul, a converted Jew, expresses his sorrow that most of his fellow Jews, though chosen by God, have not, are not 
embracing the gospel. Chapter 10, verse 21. Paul quotes Isaiah the prophet, who representing God says, All day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's a summary statement of this three of God's relationship with the Jews. Outstretched, loving arms and hands toward a disobedient and contrary people. So chapter 11 then begins with a legitimate question. I ask them, has God rejected his people? Has he had it up to here with them? I'm done with you. The answer, verse 1, by no means. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Foreknew in the sense of whom he determined even pre-Abraham to be his people. To put it another way, Paul asks a second question in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, if God hasn't rejected the Jews, have they stumbled into a permanent fall from God's purposes and grace? Are, are they like the, the lady in the TV commercial who said, I've fallen and I can't get up? Has Israel fallen to the point that they can't or won't get up? Paul's answer is the same as the answer to the first question. By no means. Rather, middle of verse 11, through their trespass, that is, through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass, if the Jews fall, their trespass, their rebellion means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, in the outworking of his sovereign purposes for the world, God will use the rebellion and the fall of the Jews to reach Gentiles, which, he's, which he is doing. And they, by their relationship with God through Jesus, will make, will eventually, ultimately make Israel jealous. Jealous in the good sense of leading them to repenting and, and returning as they come to Jesus. Now, beginning with verse 13, Paul expands that answer as he writes directly to the Gentiles in this Roman audience. So verse 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I, Paul, a devout Jew, when I was struck down on that road to Damascus, when I met Jesus Christ, not only was I dramatically changed to, to believe in him, but I also received a mission that I would be an apostle to everybody. Jew and Gentile. So when I come to a city, Paul is saying, he models, I first go to the synagogue. 
and I preach to the Jews. But often there's not much of a response, so I go to the Gentiles, and I magnify my ministry. That is, I take every opportunity to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Why? Verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Jealousy is not usually thought of as an admirable quality. But here Paul is saying that if my effort to reach you Gentiles is successful, and the Jews see how the gospel has changed you, and they, as they see you living as a gratefully forgiven people who love Jesus and you love people, as, as they see you live out your convictions and Christian values with joy and peace, they will become jealous. Jealous in the sense of envious, uh, wanting, longing for that kind of experience and relationship with God for themselves. And Paul adds how great that would be, verse 15, for if their rejection, if their rejection of Jesus means that the world of Gentiles can be reconciled to God, imagine, imagine Gentiles, what there, the Jewish acceptance means, but life from the dead. In other words, if Israel's rejection has such a positive worldwide impact as Gentiles embrace the gospel, imagine what Israel's acceptance and repentance and re reception of Jesus might mean to the world. Paul says it will be life from the dead. Just as the resurrection of Jesus totally transformed the disciples, so Israel's acceptance of Jesus will have a huge, dramatic effect upon them and the world of that day. Then Paul uses a couple of metaphors to illustrate what he's saying. Verse 16, if the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Regarding the dump, uh, the dough and lump illustration, it's taken from the Old Testament worship of presenting a piece of dough as an offering to the Lord. But Paul doesn't expand at all upon that illustration and goes to the familiar uh, site of olive trees and expands upon that for uh, several verses. As a result of God's choice of Abraham and his descendants, and Abraham's response of faith uh, in God's promises, the root of that olive tree is holy. It's set apart unto God, and it's from that root that the tree and the branches grow and flourish. In this text, there's a reference to the cultivated natural olive tree and the wild olive tree. The branches of the cultivated tree are the Jews who come from this holy root. They're in a covenant relationship with God, whereas the Gentiles are represented by the branches on the 
wild olive tree. But verse 17, Paul says, if some of the branches, that is, branches of the Jewish tree, were broken off by their rebellious and disobedient spirit, and you, you Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, among the Jews, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. In other words, you Gentile believers, you are connected with God through Christ, and you became one with the other branches, Jewish and Gentile believers, one in Christ. But verse 18, don't be arrogant toward the branches, the Jewish branches. Gentiles, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Gentile believers, your connection to the gospel is, is to that good root, that good tree. It's not because of anything you have done. It's not because of anything you deserve, but it's because of God's grace as the source of your new life. He, because of his grace, is using the rebellion and the rejection of the Jews to connect you to the tree. You didn't get your, graft yourself into that tree. God did that because the natural branches, the Jewish unbelievers, were being cut off. So then, verse 19, you, you Gentile believers, will say, the branches, the natural ones, were broken off then so that I might be grafted in. Paul says, verse 20, that's true. You got it. Right on. But listen, verse 20, they, the Jews, were broken off because of their unbelief. But you Gentiles, you stand fast. You are securely connected to the tree. You are standing fast through faith. The Jews were broken off because of their lack of faith, their lack of belief as demonstrated in their actions. But your faith, Gentiles, is being demonstrated by standing fast. And then he adds, so do not become proud. Don't pridefully pat yourself on the back because you did something the Jews didn't do. Don't give yourself the credit for becoming a living branch. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Gentiles, be humbled by that. Do not become proud. Don't boast. Don't give yourself the credit for becoming a living branch. Then Paul adds, do not become proud, but fear. What would Gentile believers fear? Verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. If God cut off the natural branches, the Jews, from connection to the tree, because of their unbelief and disobedience, 
neither will he spare you, you Gentiles who are grafted in, if you follow their example. And friends, this, this ought to grab our attention here. For it sounds as if remaining connected to God is not that secure. And verse 22 doesn't help. It says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness, God's grace to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So verses 21 and 22 form why we should fear. The danger of being cut off, just like the natural branches, the Jews were. So man, what do we do with that? Some of us will look at this and say, see, I can lose my connection with God. I can lose my salvation. Other of us, others of us will look at this and say, I don't understand. For I've been taught and I have believed on the basis of other scripture that once I'm connected to God through Christ, I'm secure forever. We just went through Romans 8, and verse 30 says that those whom God predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, what God began in me, he will, he will complete in me. And that is my understanding. I believe that those of us who are in Christ, genuinely in Christ, are secure in him. I personally believe that on the basis of much scripture, my salvation is solid. It's assured if I'm genuinely born again and saved. But what I wasn't taught, but came to believe with increased study and time, is that with genuine connection to the tree comes the evidence of connection. Fruit. The Bible clearly teaches that the faith that saves us is the faith that changes, transforms us. James teaches that the faith that doesn't produce is not a saving faith. No change, no fruit, no evidence implies no connection. Very helpful to me has been the little book of First John. John states why he writes this book. Verse, chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. You, you believers, you may know. You may have assurance that you are indeed connected to the tree. And what I, John, am writing to you is a summary 
of the evidence that you are connected to the tree, that you are born again. What's the evidence that John presents? Well, six times in this little book, we see the phrase, and it's identical each time in the Greek language, whoever has been born of God, followed by evidence. The verb tense used there refers to a one-time act in the past. Whoever has been at one time born of God, just as we are born once physically, so we are born once spiritually. And here's the evidence. For example, 1 John 2.29 says that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. Chapter 3, verse 9 says, he cannot keep on sinning. The believer cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Chapter 4, verse 7, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Chapter 5, verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. In chapter 5, verse 19, it's 18, it's a repeat of chapter 3, verse 9. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So John gives us five pieces of evidence that one is truly born of God, born again, connected to God, saved. And it's not multiple choice. It's a package. For example, almost everybody I know says, well, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, so I must be born of God. Well, even the devil believes that Jesus is the Christ. The evidence of saving faith the evidence that I'm truly connected to Christ is the rest of the package. Authentic salvation will show in my growing hatred of sin and my growing love for and pursuit of righteousness. It will show in my growing love for people, the love that seeks to sacrifice in order to help them in their time of need. Authentic, born of God status will also show in my relationship to the world. For John says that the one born of God overcomes the world. The one born of God doesn't allow the world system to determine his or her values. The born of God person does not go to the world to see what's the best way to use my money, what's the best way to handle my time, my energy, my possessions. The born of God will say, what does the Bible say on how to use my money, how to use my possessions, how to use my time and energy? The world will not be my teacher of marriage and sexual and other moral values. 
Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. The faith that saves us for eternity is the faith that transforms us in the present. Yes, I will slip and fall. I'll take two steps forward, one backward. But I'll always be heading in the right direction, becoming more like Christ. I will confess sin when it's brought to my attention by the Spirit, through the Word, or through people that love me. When it's brought to my attention, I will, I will confess it. I will agree with God. God, I have sinned against you. I will repent of what's wrong, and I will recommit myself to what is good and righteous and moral according to God's standard. The evidence of being born of God is not perfection but progress, movement in the direction of consistently developing evidence. So some of us may be convinced that we can lose our salvation. And this is one passage that is often used. Some of us are convinced we can't lose our salvation and we support that with other scripture. It's been a debate within the church for centuries. But I believe what we would all agree upon, biblically, is that the faith that genuinely saves is the faith that changes us. We would agree that true faith impacts our values, our priorities, our morals, everything. So it's no wonder that Paul said to the Corinthians, Corinthian believers, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Look at the evidence, Corinthians. Are you in the faith? It's no wonder that Peter wrote, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Believers, brothers, Peter says, make sure you're connected. You're right with God. Well, need to wrap this up. Let's note that Paul concludes this section with these reassuring words. Verse 23, And even they, that is the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, you Gentiles, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, there's hope. 
particularly for the Jews. For he, if he can take unnatural branches, Gentiles, and graft them into God's life-giving kingdom, certainly he can graft the natural branches, the Jews, back into the olive tree from which they are presently cut off. And you know, the next section in Romans 11 says that is exactly what God will do. He uses the expression, all Israel will be saved. What that means, we'll leave to Pastor Eric next week. So what's the so what for us today? Let me close with three brief thoughts. Not on the screen, but number one. As we reflect on the truths of God's sovereign work with Gentiles and Jews. And perhaps you're thinking, you know, I really don't care what he's doing with Gentiles and Jews. But be encouraged as you see that nothing can hinder the plan of God for the world, the Jews, the church, and nothing can hinder his plan for you. He has a marvelous way of accomplishing his purposes and will in his way and in his time. Believe, embrace that as you face the challenges that are coming your way. Trust this God as you pray for that rebellious friend who sounds like this, these Jews. Rebellious, contrary. God has a plan. Trust this sovereign God as you read and hear the news and wonder what in the world is happening. Number two, as we think of the root tree branches picture that Paul uses, I wonder, have you been grafted into God's life-giving tree by entering into a trust-follow relationship with Jesus? If not, I encourage you to talk to someone this morning in whom you have spiritual confidence and ask them to help you get that right and make that commitment. If you have or think you have, I would ask, have you evaluated whether or not you have been grafted in by looking at the evidence? If the evidence is there and growing, praise God for his work of grace in you. It is his work. If the evidence isn't there, I pray that God is tugging at your heart, that you are hearing the invitation of Jesus to come to him, to confess your need of him, to repent of sin and follow him. Number three, as I think of Paul's desire to make the Jews jealous and be saved, 
I wonder if anybody is jealous for Jesus because of what they see in you, what they see in me, or are they turned off by what they see? May God place upon our hearts a desire to live in such a way that people will be jealous for Jesus and drawn to Jesus. And may God impress upon each of us to pray for someone who needs Jesus while asking God to use us as his agents. Amen. Father, thank you for this time together. Thanks for your word. Lord, it's a tough portion of scripture. And I pray that if what I have said does not help bring clarity, that you would bring clarity as we continue to reflect and ponder what you have written here. And I'm more than bringing clarity. I pray that you would bring conviction. Conviction of what needs to occur in our own lives as we reflect on your sovereignty, as we reflect on the gift of your Son, as we reflect on what you're doing in our world and in our lives. I thank you for each one in this room. I pray that you would dismiss us with your blessing, Lord, and just cause us to continue to evaluate. Lord, how am I doing with you? And Lord, if it's not so good, show me. If it's good, Lord, I give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.